Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm speaking to someone who has been an inspiration to so many of us over the years. This episode is part catch-up, some business advice, and part counseling session. It's with the host of the amazing podcast, Startups for the Rest of Us, the Rob father himself, Rob Walling. Now, Rob is first and foremost a serial entrepreneur, a practitioner more than a preacher. On his podcast, he focuses quite a bit on the software as a service business model. In 2016, Rob exited a business that was software as a service. It was called Drip for what he describes as a life-changing exit. He also coined the stair-step approach, which is a way of embarking on and progressing through your entrepreneurial journey. And I know that has inspired many of us. He also runs the MicroConf community. And in 2018, he co-founded the startup accelerator for ambitious bootstrappers, Tiny Seed, with his partner, Einar Volset. Very, very cool. All right, so let's get to it. I started by asking Rob about something I heard him say on the show recently, which as the co-founder of a two-sided marketplace myself, which is Dynamite Jobs, it did make me pause and think. One of the reasons I called you today, Rob, is on your podcast, you said you shouldn't bootstrap a two-sided marketplace. And I think I was having a similar thought right before you said it. <laughs> so I thought, man, I'm going to call Rob and get some free coaching and figure out what's going on. I'm curious as to where this opinion came from and uh, what you know about it. Yeah, I find myself saying that sentence probably three or four times a year on the podcast itself. And it's usually when a listener writes in and says, I'm about to start this service that matches this with that, these people with that people. and and I always say, I really wouldn't bootstrap a two-sided marketplace. But you know what? There's there's the next part of that sentence, which is unless you already have access to one side. That's the thing that sometimes I leave out. So if you raise a bunch of venture capital, then you you could potentially have money to fight the war on two fronts. Like starting a freaking business isn't hard enough. You want to start two businesses? (laughs) That's what it's like. You know what I mean? I mean, building a product that people want and then just getting them to pay you for it is hard enough. But it's like, no, I want to market to two completely different audiences and have a chicken and egg problem. Like it is one of the hardest entrepreneurial things that I know of. So again, if you raise, let's say you raise five or 10 million bucks, at least then you could build two teams. You can go after it. But bootstrapping when it's one, two, three people and you're just scrambling, really, really hard. And it's for some reason... So many people are drawn to this. I find especially more early stage entrepreneurs want to, it's like they see Uber and they see Instacart and they see DoorDash and they say, well, that's what the businesses are today. So I'm going to, I'm going to kind of go after that much like I would have maybe tried to build a search engine in 2000 or a social network in 2005. It's like what the big VCs were doing. But the problem is chicken and egg is real and trying to bootstrap that is very, very hard. However, Dynamite Jobs is a two-sided marketplace, right? But you guys have access to one side. Or you have actually have access to both sides, if you want to know the truth. You definitely have access to people who want 
to work remotely and who can provide services. And then you have, you know, decent access into people who want to hire. Similar with website Stack Overflow. Yeah, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. I mean, when they, so Stack Overflow is now a whole group of sites, right? It's server fault and there's, I don't know, there's a bunch of sites and it's like, Social question and answer, basically. Someone asked a hard question, specifically on Stack Overflow, it's a programming or a technical question. Then people weigh in and the best answers get voted to the top. Then people weigh in and the best answers get voted to the top. And over time, if the answer is out of date, like people will update it, it's like a really well-maintained thing. If any of us tried to start that from scratch, it would have been ridiculously hard because you're trying to get people to contribute, trying to get people to visit, and it's two sides. The reason that that was so successful so quickly is two people with massive developer audiences started it. They teamed up. It was Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood, and they were bloggers. They were like the most popular developer bloggers at the time, developer business. And even when they suggested, I remember thinking, I don't think you're going to get this off the ground. Like I remember being skeptical. This is, I mean, what was it? 2005, six, seven in that range. I think it was around there, but without that, the site would have just wouldn't have been anything. Do you guys have any marketplaces that are successful in your portfolio right now? I don't think I've invested in a single marketplace, like 59 tiny seed companies. And then I have like 20 between you know, Sheridan and I, 20 personal. They're not all SaaS either. They're just all products that are sold. Now, I will say we had someone apply to tiny seed and I'll, I'll disguise their business because this should be confidential, but they run a website. We're actually still in conversation with them. They're not in a batch yet, but I would like to get them in. But they basically get, let's say two or 300,000 unique visitors a month because they have built some training and some contests for a very specific niche. Let's all make one up, but let's say it's C++, it's programming. And so they get two or 300,000 developer uniques per month to come play a game and learn more about C++ and com compete and do all this stuff. So it's an okay business. It's a very consumery business and it plateaued because it's cheap, right? It's nine bucks a month or something. So what we talked about was I said, in your shoes, I would start a job board. You have the supply is what you have. And the demand is employers who are looking to hire C++ people. Not only do you have a lot of them, they're like competing in coding competitions. You literally have a scoreboard of potentially who the best technical are. So, I mean, that is an amazing business, but he kind of stumbled into it by accident. And that one, if we can get into Tiny C, he's actively working on that other side of it right now. And I would love to have him join. So that, that would be maybe the one that might be in anytime soon. The thing about these marketplace ideas is that they're easy to have. Like they're on the tip of all of our tongues because you don't have to conceive of something. You see it right in front of you that people want jobs and people want to ride somewhere. People want the food delivered. So I think the thing that has bewildered us as we go through this process, we think about all the advantages we have and all the capital that we've spent. I mean, we're well on our way to getting to the seven figure level. and. I think we're just sort of shocked at how expensive it was. Where's the expense? Is it in technology? Yeah, time. I think the time of all the people involved is really what it is. So I was thinking about this idea of like, well, how much does it cost to start a business nowadays? And I kind of came up with this number of half a million bucks. And if you value your time at $150,000 a year and say, yeah, well, three years and 50 grand, something like that. If you're going to build a business that will scale to be a seven-figure business, I'll add that caveat because I think building like a, a developer building an app that does five grand a month, like on Indie Hackers or something, that doesn't take half a million, right? But that's truly a lifestyle business in the positive sense of the word. But I think you're talking about a more ambitious business, right? Where you're going to hire people and stuff. I'm curious if you think the stair-step approach has changed over the years. What's new about it? 
Because I feel like we keep going back to the well on this thing and it seems to keep working. Let's talk about it again as a framework. Like, What does it mean? And then maybe we could just jigger with a little and see if, if there's some fresh idea there. I updated that blog post about within the last year because there is something big that changed and I'll get, we'll get to it in a second. So yeah, the, the stair step was a concept I came up with in order to speak at DCBKK in 2014. I think it was, it was in the back of my head and I was trying to piece it together into a more cohesive framework. You invited me to speak, you and he invited me to speak. And I said, this is a great excuse to like try to write a talk around this idea. And the idea is not to look around at all the successful entrepreneurs and say, wow, that person's doing an eight-figure business and they picked a two-sided marketplace. They raised a bunch of money and they're doing all the stuff I'm going to do what they're doing. Because the problem is, is they're playing in the major leagues and you might still be playing t-ball, you know, and we all have to start somewhere. And so the stair step is about playing t-ball until you get good enough to play high school ball, to then play minor leagues, and then to play the majors. These are baseball metaphors, but I think people get it. And so really, I broke it down into three steps of like step one, start with a small business, a small product, whether it's an info product or a course, whether it's a WordPress plugin or you know an add-on to Shopify or Heroku, and launch this relatively small thing on the side while you work a day job, potentially, or freelance, and try to build that into $1,000, $5,000 a month revenue stream, realizing that this business will probably never support you full-time. But the experience you'll get, the confidence, the skills you'll build, and the revenue are this incredible leveling up. And then step two is repeat step one until you have enough small businesses that you can buy out all of your own time. And then you're essentially self-funding, you're angel investing yourself. And I had looked back at my experience. I did exactly this. And then I started looking around MicroConf and I was like, oh, wait, Dave Rodenbaugh did this. and you know, there were like seven other people that I could think of off the top of my head who had literally started with one WordPress plugin, but WordPress plugins, you know, top out, right? Unlike SaaS, and then either bought another one or build it, bought it, and kind of stacked it until, well, now you own your own time and you have, you know, a couple, you're in a couple years, maybe thousand days in, you have enough experience, you have some revenue coming in, you have knowledge, you have confidence. I know I didn't have confidence in the early days. And then at that point, I say, level up, get into recurring revenue, build that big idea, right? Maybe it's your drip or it's your dynamite jobs. It's something that's m- way more ambitious and that if you had started that 10 years ago, you would have failed more, more than likely. And that is why I think we see a lot of Silicon Valley companies or just a lot of these kind of funded startups. They try to go after step three when... Really, they don't have the experience or the skills or the confidence to do it, but they convince someone to give them money and then they, they crash and burn because they don't, they don't have those learnings on the smaller field. One thing that has changed is there's a lot more opportunities to do step one businesses that are recurring revenue from the start. Like a Shopify add-ons, a lot of those now are recurring. Um, a lot of these ecosystems, you know, I deal with software, so that's a lot of my examples. A lot of these ecosystems now support recurring. And that was the part where I was like, had that part hasn't held up. So I actually went back and updated the post and kind of pulled that out because really whether it's recurring or not is not that actually that relevant. The idea is that it's small. You can get it out quick and get a lot of learnings and you're doing it yourself. You're not trying to, and and it's less complicated. And the nice part about these marketplaces, imagine like the Envato marketplaces where you sell like WordPress themes or even like Udemy where you sell courses, what Udacity, you know, there's all these places. The nice part is 
you don't have to learn bare metal marketing. Like bare metal marketing is hard, right? That's when I'm going to go run ads. I'm going to build, you know, design a logo. I'm going to hire, <laughs> build a website or hire somebody. I'm going to do all the things to truly get people to come. If there's already a marketplace in place, it takes a huge amount of complexity off your plate from the start and allows you to get its training wheels. And I say that in a positive way and it allows you to kind of build a business. And then, you know, you can learn the other stuff as you go. If you need help getting control of your email inbox, this is for you. That's right. This episode is brought to you by the team at MailmanHQ.com. It's a Gmail plugin that lets you decide when and what emails land in your inbox. Many of our listeners spend a huge portion of their days inside of their inbox. And if you're one of them, pay close attention to the next 30 seconds. See, Mailman allows you to set up your own emailing schedule on both your personal and work Gmail accounts such that all incoming emails are collected and delivered to your inbox as per the schedule you set up that's in batches so nothing drops in between. Now, what about those urgent emails? Don't worry. Mailman lets you configure your VIPs so their emails will land in your inbox immediately so you can respond and make progress in your business. And there's so much more too. So get a defender and an ally in your inbox. Get Mailman. Sign up for a free account over at mailmanhq.com slash tropicalmba. If you use that link and decide to upgrade to a paid plan, you'll get 30% off your first year via this link. So here it is again, mailmanhq.com slash Tropical MBA. Thanks to the team at Mailman HQ for sponsoring the show. Go give them a try. Give them a look. Get ahead on your inbox. Again, that's mailmanhq.com slash Tropical MBA. Now, if the increasing number of these ecosystems, ready-made marketplaces has helped ease some part of the stair-step journey for some of us, the greatest challenge Rob identifies seems to remain the same. I think the most difficult problem to solve is building something people want and are willing to pay for. But once you've done that, I do think that driving more traffic, it does depend, right? Because like I can look at a SaaS funnel specifically. I don't know any business funnel because I don't know that I would know e-com numbers, but like I can look at a SaaS funnel and just look at the numbers, right? The unique visitors to sign up, whether it's a trial or a paid and then trial to paid conversion rate, if it's credit card or not, like and then churn, and then lifetime value, and all this stuff, right? And our average revenue per user. And I can say, there's a problem here, because that number should be in this range, and it's not. Why? And I, you know, I'll often, in tiny seed interviews, ask founders, like, why is that number so high or so low? And sometimes they have a great answer for it, of like, oh, because we recently did an AppSumo deal, and it screwed up the number. Or we're working actively working on that. That's our number one focus. Other times, they, they don't know. But if you get that funnel to where it's cranking and it's like, wow, we're converting a lot of people to trial and we're converting a lot of people and our churn is really low, that is the point where we should pump so much time and money into just filling the funnel with qualified leads to driving more traffic. The hard part about that whole sentence is qualified because you can drive more traffic, but it's like, how do you find people that actually want this thing? And product's going to evolve over time. How do you evolve it such that more people are qualified? Because oftentimes you'll get a hundred people and the way your product is today, really only five of those could get value from it. But how do you turn that product into where it's like, no, 10, 20, 30 of those could use it as the product matures. And I think you guys are doing a good job with Dynamite Jobs on that, actually. I mean, I just think you're adding features, but then you're also, I think, adding and expanding your offerings in a way that feels like you're listening to customer needs. Is that, I mean, I'm looking at it from the outside, but is that kind of how you're doing it on the inside? 
we're changing stuff every day. I have some updates for you, things we changed based on the advice you gave me last time. And I wanted to get some fresh advice for you this time. I, oh, cool. I shut down my beloved services marketplace. I oh, knew, you, you, knew you were so right. <laughs> I, I just I wanted it, it to work though. I wanted it to. needs to work. I'm mature enough to know that that will happen. Like the world needs it. It's just like you said, uh, a two front battle. Now I want a four front battle, a six front battle. I think we've just settled on this idea that starting a remote job board is hard enough. Uh, we, we're facing enough challenges. When you're evaluating founders, uh, it was struck me recently. You were talking about the mechanics of growth and how these numbers you're seeing the patterns. Now you kind of sit at the sort of the source of this information. You can see the patterns mechanically. How much of your decision is driven by the psychological profile of the founder versus the mechanics you're seeing? You're right that sometimes you do just find, as you put it, a killer. <laughs> That's an interesting phrase, but <laughs> it's just an amazing founder that when you talk to him for a while, you're like, wait, like Jordan Gall was one of these, right? Where I talked to, he was this young, I mean, honestly, young up and comer, comes to microconf. I don't remember if I if he did an attendee talk or what, but I was like, this guy's really sharp. And he's like, yeah, I'm starting this e-commerce abandoned cart thing. And I'm like, that's pretty interesting. If you get any traction, let me know. Because I'm not really writing many checks, but again, this is pre-drip acquisition, right? So it's like, I write small checks. And so he was one where I was kind of just batting on him. And because I just thought he will figure this out. But that's hard to detect. I hear like Jason Calcanis and a lot of Silicon Valley people saying, oh, it's just, you're just betting on founders. You find a founder, you bet on them, you bet on them. When you're building like seven figure businesses, eight, maybe low eight, I think that's less necessary. I think an average founder can build a great seven figure business, great $5 million business. But if I'm betting on unicorn, who can build a billion dollar business? I don't know, not me. And not a lot of people, like you have to be a next level kind of founder. And I think that's where the, the difference is, is the, the world you and I play in. The cool part of it is it is kind of easier. <laughs> it, it's still hard, but it's not as hard. And so as a result, I absolutely look at the, my three Ps, the abbreviation, right? Or kind of short way of saying it is I look at the people, product market fit, and the pricing. And so the people is the founders and that it's definitely figuring out, do I think they have what it takes. But a lot of it is what have they done? It's not like we're funding ideas. If we were truly just funding pre-revenue businesses, that would be really, really hard. Because then you're like, is this idea going to work? And can this founder do it? And I guess you just, it's like hiring anyone. You just have a conversation and then go with your gut. But for us, we only fund companies with revenue. And so I can look and say, wow, in six months, this founder has built, launched, and gotten this SaaS up to two grand a month. That's not easy to do to be honest. And so seeing their track record, I think is helpful. But maybe a more detailed answer is the entire first pass through all of our applicants, we just rate like a one to five rating, purely done by looking at the application, which is just a description of what they have. It's all numbers. And then it's like, who are your competitors? What's your competitive advantage? And we all weigh in and then it averages that, averages our ratings. And then we sort descending to take the top rated ones and Tracy starts doing calls with all of them. And so the first pass truly is numbers. And usually then we dig in with founders on why are your numbers like this and try to get their sense of where they're headed. What's a number that when you're going through all the applications that would jump out at you because of your experience, but for someone like me, I, I might not see it. What's something surprising that correlates with success? 
I mean, there's only six or seven numbers total. Exceptionally low churn, like net negative churn is highly unusual. And if someone has, that is like the golden ticket of any subscription business is that when you literally have a business, I could add zero customers to this business this month and my revenue will go up because of expansion, right? Because of, it's like when when we had Drip, we had all these accounts. And if we had literally added zero customers, people's lists were growing and therefore they paid us more each month. And I think it was about eight months out of the year, eight or nine months, Drip was net negative. And that was an incredible flywheel because then once you actually start adding new customers, it's the compounding that is unlike anything else. People don't pay enough attention to is is, is your average revenue per user per month or per customer per month. It's called ARPC or ARPU. And when I see anything less than $30 have little heart palpitations because it's just because you need a kajillion customers to build a seven-figure business and usually customers paying you less are more needy and will churn faster. It's counterintuitive, but it's usually customers paying you more stick around longer, have you know less needs and obviously pay you more over their lifetime. Because if your lifetime value of a customer is, let's say, $300, there is only like four marketing approaches that you can use. You can't run Google ads if your lifetime value is $300. If your lifetime value is 3000 well, now there's maybe like eight or 10 marketing approaches you can use. I'm talking B2B, not B2C stuff, but business to business. And then if your lifetime value is, actually, I was thinking annual contract value, but you get the idea. If it, and then if it 10X is again, and suddenly it's 30 grand or it's, you have a $50,000 lifetime or annual contract value, you can do the gamut. That's where you can like literally go to trade shows. You go to in-person events. You can do kind of anything you want because you have that luxury. That's that second order effect of having higher prices. It's not just that you make more money. It's that it opens up the palette or the, the menu of marketing approaches that you can potentially try. Does it make sense then for founders looking to get into SaaS to only conceive of ideas that would have an annual contract value of tens of thousands or whatever. Yeah. No, I don't think so because, so there's a couple things. One, I've started breaking like bootstrap SaaS and mostly bootstrap startups, whether it's SaaS or not. I started breaking them up into kind of two buckets in my head. There's like truly lifestyle entrepreneurs. And I was that from 2005 until I actually was able to quit contracting, quit the day job in 2008. And so from 2008 until I started Drip in 2012, I was as four-hour workweek lifestyle as it could get. I had a bucket of companies, small products. I was making about 150 grand. I'd been making way more than that as a contractor, but who cares? Because I worked 10 hours a week and I hung out with my, we had a newborn for like eight months. I hung out with him. I was drinking the four hour work week Kool-Aid and I loved it. What happened is I got really bored <laughs> because dude, you and I are cut from the same cloth. It's like ambitious. You got, I was learning. I was writing. I was reading. I wrote my book within 18 months. Published Start Small, Stay Small, started Startups for the Rest of Us, launched MicroConf. Like that's the, I, that's what I was producing. But then I got to the point where it's like, I should probably like build a startup again. Like I should get back to actually doing the work, right? And that was where Drip came about. It's when you say, you know what? I want to build something seven figures or eight figures. And I either want to take off huge net profits from it, or I want to sell this thing for five to 50 million bucks. And in that case, well, I'll say in the lifestyle case, you can have whatever price point you want because it kind of doesn't matter because growing a business is 20 or 30K a month, you can grow a $10 a month, $20 a month business to that. It's not easy, but sure. With the more ambitious side or the I want more growth, 
it is better to have average revenue per customer higher. There's no doubt. But we also see some businesses that have these amazing dual funnels, like we're recording right now in Squadcast, right? Which is is studio quality remote uh, recording. We happen to have invested in Squadcast, so I'm a you know part through Chinese partial owner of this. Their funnel is awesome. It is, but if you look at their lowest pricing, it's like ten bucks a month. Mm-hmm. So you might say, well, how did that? They're doing. I think they've been public with this. They're doing millions a year in revenue. So you'd say, well, how is that possible? Well, it's because they have the Fly Fisherman podcasts and the D and D podcasts and the comic book podcasts, and those people do pay them nine to fifteen a month or whatever. Then they have Tropical MBA. They have startups for the rest of us, where I pay like prosumer. It is. It's one level above, and paying a hundred dollars a month for this is worth it. I don't even know what I pay to be honest, but let's say we pay a hundred bucks. It's worth it. And then a notch up from there, of course, is Gimlet Media, right, or iHeartRadio, or like these big professional, you know, some NPR station that needs to record remote. And those folks will pay thousands of. They should pay thousands a month. And so that's this dual, in their case, it's almost a three-way funnel, but like a dual funnel of having like low price points and also these higher enterprise deals is a pretty killer business. I just want to give a big thanks to all of you who listened to ads like this and went on over to dynamitejobs.com to see what we've got going on over there. Because of that, We've helped place hundreds of qualified remote professionals in your companies last year. And for this holiday season, many of you are gearing up your operation for continued growth in 2022. And to help you do it, we've got three exciting options for you to explore. The first is our entirely new hiring platform with a job post dashboard that allows you to repost and promote anytime. We've got a growing list of features there, including intelligent promotion options to help you get the maximum amount of applications. We've also got our done-for-you service. If you're sick of sorting, assessing, and interviewing, you can hire our senior recruiting staff to do the heavy lifting on your behalf. They are experienced at identifying trajectory, alignment, salary fit, and much more. And the best part is, it's a flat fee. If you're hiring multiple times in 2022, we're offering bundles with steep discounts. Head on over to dynamitejobs.com and book a call to hear about that. And finally, we offer contract recruiting. That's right, a zero-risk hiring option if you don't really know about the long-term fit or if you're looking for a partner to help take care of the legalities of hiring contractors. We can do that for a monthly fee for the contractors that you bring on board. So let's grow together. If you're looking to grow your remote business, book a call with our team and find out today how Dynamite Jobs can help. You can find out about this and much more over at dynamitejobs.com slash remote recruiting. I think one of the uh, themes on Startups for the Rest of Us and something that has come up a few times for me in the past few months is people who found themselves stuck on a step and trying to figure out, is persistence my problem? Am I my problem? Why aren't I having more success? Why does it seem repetitive that the same things keep coming back in terms of business results? I'm sure people come to you all the time that are stuck and frustrated with their startup career and they want to build something like Squadcast, but they just haven't yet. It's tough to answer because sometimes it is the person. I mean, I think you and I both know people who just, they just get in their own way a lot. And for them, it's, I don't know how to, (laughs) I don't know how to help you. Like I can coach you and I can tell you to do things, but some people either don't do them. They're like not coachable or they just do them at a, they don't get how they should do it. They don't have that high quality bar. 
or the bias to action and doing it quickly. But then there are founders who I think just, I guess it comes back, you've heard me say this a billion times, but it's hard work, luck, and skill. And I think some founders don't want to put in the hard work. Some founders don't have the skill and aren't winning to learn it. And then some founders, they get, they're just not lucky. They have just have a string of bad luck where they launch a product and it just, one thing happens. I mean, geez, man, we had we had a handful of founders. I'm trying to think how many. It was probably two or three when COVID hit. They were building great businesses. And one of them was like SaaS for after school programs. And this business was still, I was like up and to the right. I'm so bullish on this. And then COVID hit and it was just done. It, it just zeroed it out basically for months and months and months. And it just dropped up job. He's still alive and kicking and he's actually starting to grow again now. So it's great. But this has been like the worst 18 months of his professional career. I do think there's a mix of factors that sometimes it's, there's the cards kind of don't line up. And sometimes it's uh, the person's getting in their own way over and over. And I think the only way you can tell is if you look over a long period of time, right? If someone comes in and has one big win right away, it's like, wow, either they're really good or they got lucky. Will they do it again? If you watch someone over 10 years, you can tell. Maybe you could catch us up on the last 12 months of Tiny Seed a little bit. One thing shocking that you said to me is, correct me if I'm wrong, you believe the returns that Tiny Seed will achieve for the strategy you guys are executing will be more profitable in the end than the classic Silicon Valley strategy of hoping on a unicorn. The models we've run and my hope or our thesis, I guess I will say, is that we can produce venture returns, equivalent venture returns of the top. I forget what exact number is, so I hate to say it, but tinyc.com slash thesis if you want to read the full thing, but the top quartile and the top decile, like the models we've run with bootstrap B2B SaaS companies, we did a back test, an anonymous back test uh, data from like, it was either several hundred or several thousand companies. It was quite a bit. And there are absolutely returns to be gained there. There's this weird downside protection that you don't get with Silicon Valley investments. With a typical venture fund, they'll invest at a really high valuation because there's a lot of bidding wars. And usually those companies, they go big or they go to z- literally to zero where they're worth nothing. And that's just the common story. If you try to start a DoorDash competitor and that doesn't work, there's no value there. What's a trip is there's a ton of base hits, ton of base hits in SaaS, right? And by base hit, I mean, look, maybe I want to sell for, I'm a founder of a mostly bootstrap SaaS company. I take money from Tennessee. And my goal is to sell for 30 million. Even if I kind of don't really do well and I get to a million in ARR, I can sell that business for in the ballpark of $5 million. That's A, life-changing for me, but B, that provides Tiny Seed a pretty dang good return. We invest in the one, it's usually one to two million valuation range. So let's say we write a check at a million dollars. Like we literally 5X'd by the time someone sells for 5 million. And that's just a totally, and if they sell for 30, we've 30X. Versus if I invest at 10 million, they sell at 30 million, I have 3X, there's nothing there, right? But the other downside protection is a SaaS company doing 200 grand a year, very small. I mean, we fund companies all the time doing that and north of that. That company can effectively be almost liquidated through like one of the brokers. If it's doing that much a year, you can sell that for 800 grand, a million dollars. So they're effective stewards of the investor's money in that sense. Yeah, yeah, because they're real businesses, man. There's always value there versus I'm not saying Silicon Valley companies are not real businesses, but they are, they're not real until they really work. They either work like Uber or they completely crash and burn, right? That's the usual story. And it's usually one out of 10, one out of 20 is is where they're going for. And for us, I think the numbers are just going to look different. I think we're going to have 
a couple that go really big out of every 10 or 20 companies. I think a couple, you know, whatever, two or three, I'm making numbers, but you get it. It's like two or three will go really big. And then there's going to be a bunch of nice singles and doubles and triples that like, oh, I sold for 5 million. Oh, I sold for 10 million. Still amazing life-changing outcomes for the founder. Still provides solid returns for us. Not a thousand X like Uber would provide, but it's enough to build a fund on. Why not a thousand X though? Because it kind of occurred to me as I was like, poking around that, thinking about Tiny Seed yesterday, that it's sort of interesting that you guys, it didn't feel like you could have existed seven years ago. And I was kind of like, well, why? And I'm wondering if you're around with these startups for five years, maybe this is how it gets done in the future. I think there's a real possibility there. I mean, we've seen that across our careers is that we kind of laughed at 10 years ago, what we were doing. And just seeing these traditional tech companies like not being able to hire people outside of the US, like really basic stuff. Just think like we just live in this parallel reality that I feel like perhaps there could be a crop of companies that comes from Tiny Seed that define the future in an important way. I think that's a distinct possibility. And it's definitely something Anar and I have talked about internally or just privately of like, could one of these just hit and get to 50 million in ARR, 100 million in ARR? There's absolutely a possibility of that. It depends on if a founder wants to do that. It depends on their aspirations, to be honest. Because, man, once you build a company to a few million in annual revenue, people come and knock it because they either want to invest or they want to buy you. It is the example that I often give of people who say, I just want to run my company forever. And I say, great, you should go do that. That sounds great. But you're running your $2 million ARR company and you're pulling three, four, 500 grand out of it a year. That's a great lifestyle. And then someone comes along and offers you 5X multiple, 6X multiple. This is SaaS again, but 6X multiple is not even that hard if you're going. So suddenly they're like, hey, here's $12 million in long-term cap gains. So if you're a C-Corp and you have it for five years, it's QSBS. There's no federal cap gains, no income tax uh, on it. And there's state tax or whatever. But suddenly you're like, wait a minute, 24 years of net profit? Because like I said, you're taking half a million off the year. Suddenly that changes. Some people say, what would I do later? I think base camps like this, right? Why would I leave this? I think Dan Norris, I, I had him on the podcast a while back and he said, I don't know what else I would do. And that's great. And that's for some people. Some people, when they see that amount, they think to themselves, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to pay off my house. I'm going to fully populate my kid's college fund. I'm going to have enough money that I never have to work again and I can work on whatever I want. And that's the choice I made. I think there's a few others who... I think Sam from My First Million, you, you listen to that. Like mm -hmm. he said the same thing. He said, the only reason I sold is because it was enough money that I knew I could make my own calls for the rest of my life. I feel like there's an opportunity for, to solve that problem. The problem of founders needing to take life-changing money off the table. Yes. Raising a secondary round. Describe it to us. Because I feel like you being you know, a mentor to your portfolio companies could potentially retain your equity on behalf of your investors somehow and continue along in the journey with the company. Absolutely. And that is, it's called a secondary round, which is where oftentimes if you're going to raise growth capital, where it's like what Tiny C does, what venture capitalists and angels do, it's like you take the money into the company and the company gives shares to the investors, right? So the money goes into the business and they use it to grow. Secondary is where the founders themselves sell some of their shares or units and they get to keep some of the cash. Now, in some series A's where they are raising five, $10 million, I'd say my, with my ear to the ground, good chunk of those, the founder's taking a million off the table. 500 grand to 2 million is usually you know between the founders. And the reason is 
Because you don't want to be in the situation that Rand Fishkin was. He blogged about this where Moz is doing 40 million a year and he says, I own this car. We have $10,000 in the bank and I'm the CEO of this company. And that's it. I have like no net worth. And it's kind of scary, right? You don't want to be in that position. And so to be able to take half a million or whatever that your number is to just feel that's life-changing money. It's not never have to work again money, but it's a huge relief, right? You can, you can rest easy. And so then there's this other option. I was saying doing it with the Series A, but one thing that we talked about, we've talked about with our Tiny Seed Syndicate, which the syndicate is a just-in-time fund. Any accredited investor can come in and just do a, uh, they can invest in a company that we syndicate. We're doing like one or two a month right now. With the syndicate, I do think we're going to do some secondary rounds where a founder says, look, I'm doing $3 million a year in ARR. I'm getting offers to sell at whatever the number is, 15, 20. I kind of want to sell for 50 or 100, but I want to take half a million off the table, right? Or I want to take a million off the table. And so you value the business and then you say, sell 10% for X amount, right? 10% for a million, value to 10 million, and do a, a syndicate round with us to basically do exactly that. It's to solve that problem. It used to be frowned upon like in the venture spaces mm. because it's like, well, the founder's not all in. They're not willing to fall on the sword. I always hated that. I mean, think about it. If you were a little younger in a different place, like you could run drip. Like you still have a strong perspective about that space and where it's going. And I would have taken my, it was not an option or I didn't know it was an option. I mean, this is what, 2014, 15. It was really would have been very hard for me to do, but that would have changed something, I think. I would have at least evaluated the possibility of, of taking it further. What's occurred to me recently too, there's a lot of these things that are changing the landscape tremendously. Like, for example, I think the legibility of the brokerage platforms is like an insurance policy for entrepreneurs because I kind of know what I built is worth now. And I know that there's buyers that'll buy it. So I'm, I'm sort of like, oh, well, DJ is worth like this. So I could always just go sell it for that. Whereas like in 2015, maybe someone wants to broker this business. You know yeah. what I mean? Oh, man, I have ranted and raved in the positive sense about Empire Flippers, FE, Quiet Light, with like any of these, the fact that this ecosystem exists now is amazing for entrepreneurs. And I know some people come and complain and it's like, well, it's, they're artificially suppressing prices and it's net profit and blah, blah, blah. Maybe we can have that debate. Bottom line, I mean, you say 2015, man, I remember buying and selling businesses, content websites, eBooks, there were some small software products in the 2007 to 2011 timeframe. And it was like 12 to 18 months of net profit. That was what we were looking at. You'd build this amazing, pretty cool business and it just wasn't worth anything. And so I totally agree with you. I think that's an amazing downside in insurance protection. It's always a great personal pleasure to talk to Rob. I hope that came through in today's episode. Big shout out to Rob Walling from tinyseed.com and startups for the rest of us for dropping by. An absolute pleasure, always. That's it for this week. We'll be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time. See you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. 